0: Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Well, if we were in Paris, it would be a real sense of deja vu, but we're in Auckland, so it's just the same old thing happening again, back into lockdown this week in Auckland. So we're coming to you from a Zoom call. Lippy's sitting in the front seat of his car. Bald is in our studio. I'm not quite sure where Raj is, and I'm sitting in the home office that I've already spent uh, 16 hours in over the last couple of days. But coming up on the podcast today, we are going to talk about our passion, and the thing that keeps us motivated through these long lockdown evenings and that's cricket we're going to talk New Zealand Black Caps Australia T20s White Ferns versus England limited over cricket the Ford Trophy and a whole lot more we'll then dip into India versus England where we've got a little bit of a stats fest that does focus quite heavily on the surface in Ahmedabad all coming up on the Top Order podcast stay tuned So we'll start close to home. Black Caps Australia, two from two for New Zealand. And the final three games are all going to be without fans now. Top order boys, pretty disappointed. We're not going to get to go to Eden Park to watch the game. They're moved down to Wellington, but a pretty decent start from the
1: Black Caps boys or the beige boys, I should say. Yeah, Raj, I reckon you should have the first word here. You said it was going to be the series of Conway, two games in. Uh, I mean, he didn't get much of a shot in that second game because of Guptill's innings, but boy, that first innings was was fantastic.
2: Yeah, it was good. Uh, the way that he came in under pressure was, was exceptional and the way he guided us through to a really, really decent total with the help of the uh, the middle to lower order there. But I guess the second game I was even more impressed with was because He didn't have to do anything. We had others who came in and and did the job with the bat, which is what you want to see. You want to see everybody contributing. Uh, So, yeah, I'm happy with that start. Two down, three to go. Yeah, boy. Conway, I was so
1: impressed with the way he paces in innings. I mean, he's been doing it all season for Wellington, doing it all season in the, the ODIs and other T20s that we've seen him in for New Zealand. He sort of feels like he's got a bit of Kane Williamson in him that way, that, you know, he... He doesn't just go out and blast it, but he can just pace things so well. And yeah, I mean, every time we see him, it just his class just shines. And yeah, I, I, they're going to have to get him in that Test side somewhere, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I think that you're one hundred percent right. It was a, it was a range of shots of scoring shots to get to that total. It wasn't, uh, you know, 10 sixes or whatever to build that ninety nine. Uh, and he still went at 167 uh, as his strike rates, which is which is massively impressive. Baldy, what did it look like uh, from the other side of the fence?
3: A Taylor two halves really from Australia bowled really well up front um, in in one of the games, but let New Zealand get away, let let Conway get 99, uh, and weren't able to really contain in the back half of that innings. You know, New Zealand made. Uh, what was 185 proved just too much. And, and then again in the second game, got 219 uh, when we had New Zealand well-contained at the 10-over mark. So New Zealand have done an excellent job to accelerate in the back end of their innings, and we know that, that New Zealand are dangerous for being able to do that. But what we thought was a reasonably well-understood equation from an Australian bowling point of view gets more and more murky, as does the Australian middle order, as does the Australian top order. So uh, all round, really, there's there's not... There's nothing that I've seen in the first two games that answers any questions that we had coming go, going into this series, um, other than that we know New Zealand is an incredibly dangerous T20 side at home, and despite their international ranking of sixth in the world, they should be really confident going into uh, the World T20 um, tournament later on in this year in India because they've got talent all over the all over the show and and a bowling lineup that can do real damage in India as we saw in the IPL. I think what was
1: really impressive for New Zealand and and what I was really excited about was uh, what Jimmy Nisham was able to do. You mentioned it just before in the way that we were able to accelerate our innings at the back end. And you know, in both games, he came in and the tempo just increased straight away. And that's such an important part of not just the way New Zealand plays their T20 cricket, but the way they play the ODI cricket as well. And that they, you know, they still had a decent score at the 10-over mark, in, in and in that second game after Guptill's impressive innings. But the way that Nisham then could just ramp up that, and yeah, I think you mentioned it there, they scored 140 in, in the back end of, uh, the back half of that innings, and yeah, if, if he can continue that, he's going to be such a valuable player for New Zealand in, in the ODI stuff and, and white ball formats.
0: And Bordy, some positives for Australia leading into these last three games. Do you think the Aussies are any closer to knowing what their best 11 is, particularly coming up to this, you know, T20 World Cup, which isn't too far away now? I thought so.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll jump in there while uh, Baldy... Gets a little bit uh, gets his technology sorted. What I'm actually a little bit worried about, and and Baldy did mention this earlier, is what does Australia's middle order look like? I mean, we've seen their top order, you know, with Matthew Wade up there. I'm not too worried about that because David Warner and and Steve Smith, uh, etc., are going to to fill in there or jump in there when when they get a chance. But that middle order, I still feel like is very fluid, and in both games really, it's actually fallen apart a little bit. Uh, especially in that in that second, second game, I feel like without stoyness Stoyness's innings there, that could have been a massive, massive loss. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I'll throw to Baldy now that he's back. Uh, then we were talking about the middle order woes, maybe not being uh, and, not and being ba- fixed. And Baldy, just whether
0: or not Aussie are any closer to knowing what their best eleven is, with you know not a lot of distance to go until this T Twenty World Cup.
3: Nothing. And what surprised me really is that they haven't used the opportunity in the first two games to experiment in that middle order as well. Marsh, Maxwell and Stoinis, relatively well-known quantities. The only question, I guess, for Australian selectors must be combinations. I would have thought that, you know, someone like Ben McDermott might have been given an opportunity in one of the first two games to to show what he can do in that middle order. It looks like from what we've seen in the, in these first two games, Australia will go to India with Marsh, Maxwell and Stoinis as their preferred uh, four, five, and six. And then, you know, maybe Smith and Warner come in at the top of the order for someone like Matthew Wade and, and Josh Philippi. That really concerns me because I think Australia have got an opportunity here to experiment a little bit and see if any of those combinations work. For me, I would have Maxwell one higher at four. Whenever he's given a more important role to play, he seems to perform better. Uh, when he comes in, you know, with only a few balls to to face, he seems to get a little bit lost. And we saw that in the IPL, um, you know for the King's eleven Punjab. When he was elevated, he did well. When he had a limited opportunity, he he didn't do really anything at all. Stoyness is dangerous. Marsh can be dangerous, but I just think we're missing that kind of kind of glue guy in the middle. Ah, uh, that can hold that innings together. Maybe Smith answers that question for us if he if he bats in that three four area. But we're just missing that Kane Williamson type player that can hold that innings together while the while the fireworks kind of go off around him.
2: With the um with with the bowling, are you worried that New Zealand's gotten away twice? Uh, and like, I'm not sure who was there to come into the bowling for mm. Australia. And are you worried that New Zealand has gotten away a little bit?
3: oh massively so massively so uh, particularly as we had in new zealand 3 for 16 in one game and they still managed to get 180 plus uh, that's a that's a really big concern for australia you look at that lineup with agar and zampa those are the two guys you'd you'd expect to be able to contain in those middle overs uh, we still haven't answered the the death bowling question. I don't think we're any closer to that. Jai Richardson looked like he was okay up front. Daniel Sams took a wicket up front, but both were expensive in the back end of both of those games. So I don't think our bowling attack has given us any real answers. Uh, my question would be at number seven, is Ashton Agar a spot too high? At number eight, what's Daniel Sams doing there from a batting point of view? Do we need to go with four high-quality specialist bowlers and carry an extra batsman given that um, we've got Marsh who can bowl, Maxwell can bowl, and Stoinis can bowl. If we only have to find four overs from those three guys, um, can we carry four specialist bowlers?
0: Baldy, what really surprises me with Mitchell Marsh is he hasn't played any international T20 cricket on the subcontinent. Um, And then you've got a bunch of guys that have gone and fulfilled that all-rounder role of Australian descent from an IPL perspective. Mm. Um, And then... You know, you're almost burning a spot, and confusion matters when he gets 45 and looks pretty good in a game in in New Zealand in conditions that are going to be so different to what they're going to face in, yeah, a matter of, of a few months' time, and arguably a very similar player in Stoyness, in terms of what you know what option he offers you, you know, a, a top order batter and and might get you two or three overs in.
3: Yeah, it's, it's an unusual one. You know, he played in one game, didn't play in that in that second game where Australia made 215. Oh, you know, see, did. He batted right down the order. So he batted yeah, below seven. At, Agar at, at seven. So that's an interesting one for me. Um, you know, he did look okay in that 45. Stoyness looked damaging as well. Two low scores for Maxwell, a middling score for Philippe. So that, that middle order, they're just trying to work out those combinations by the look of it. um. I'm ne- I'm, you're never sure with Mitchell Marsh what you're going to get. Are you going to get that consistency in the subcontinent? Because he's always good for one or two good performances over a, a five or a seven-game series. Um, we saw the same thing in the IPL to a certain extent. But are you going to get that consistent match winner uh, that you need in that middle order, someone like Stokes, someone like Conway, someone like Nisham, who can come in and, and consistently put performances on the board that make opposition take notice of you? And And we haven't quite seen enough of that yet often enough from Mitchell Marsh, as good as he is.
2: Just circling back around Bordy to a question I asked, what what is to come back into the Australian bowling ranks? What does their best four or five look like?
3: Yeah, well so the guys that are the guys that have played in the IPL and did really well, uh, Josh Hazelwood did really well in the IPL. He he would be available, you would think, for for the Australian squad. Uh, Pat Cummins potentially if he if he elects to play all three formats would be you would think based on his performances for KKR, again, another strong starter and and possibly also Mitchell Stark. I think those would be the guys that you would have a look at from that squad. Also in the test squad, but not considered for selection in in this unit in the all-rounder stakes as, as Moises Henriques. He's got another shield hundred this week. Um, and did really really well for the Sydney Sixers in their um, in their successful BBL campaign, and also Sean Abbott from the Sixers as well, who was in that Test squad to go to South Africa. So there's five guys straight off the bat that would you would think would be in the mix here, and would be looking at guys like uh, Sam's Richardson and Richardson. You know what balance um, does that bowling attack look like when you bring some of those five guys almost certainly back into this back into this team?
1: And moving back to New Zealand, just before we finish off this segment, uh, I, what do you guys think they do with Kyle Jamieson now? I mean, for the first time in his career, he's really struggled in these first two games. He's actually, you know, he's actually looked almost out of place at times. He didn't know what length to bowl and, and you know, for the first time in his career, had a real challenge and someone put him under pressure. Are they going to stick with him for these five games, do you think? I think they should.
0: And I think the reason that they should is I actually think it's easier to be a batter in T20. I think the stats would probably back that up as well. He's burst onto the international scene with a lot of success in the longer format of the game. He's obviously picked up a decent amount of uh, crawl as well in the auction that's just happened. But T20 is a bowler, it's, it's a tough place to be when you get hit for a couple of boundaries early in and over because your plan that you thought was going to be the plan even if you're close to executing you're just missing those kind of slots by a few millimeters often and it, and it's getting dispatched so I think he's going to learn a lot more from being put under pressure than he is potentially from coming in um, and, and actually just continuing the runner form he's probably had in the test match arena and kind of finding it easy I think it'll be good for him to to come back from that challenge and I think it would be, you know, when you're two lot up with, with three games to go, I think I'd be looking to give him an opportunity to get another three games of T20 cricket under his belt against an opposition that, when they fire, are going to put a bowler under pressure.
2: I um I think he actually bowled really poorly, which I think is a positive actually, because that's something that he can control. Uh, he can come back and he can he can bowl better lengths, which I think was was the key. Mm-hmm. I was a bit disappointed uh, that I felt like he wasn't probably getting the the that feedback early enough, when he did get that feedback towards the end of his four overs, he started pitching it up and started bowling good lengths and stopping the runs being scored. However, he he has, he has did go for a lot of runs, but he has that point of difference to answer your your question, Stu. He's got that bounce. If we've got someone like Lockie Ferguson with that pace and then our spinners who are bowling really well, as well as our um, Southian Bolt, I think we've got a great bowling attack there. So I think he needs to be there.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really pleased that both of you said that, actually, because I completely agree. I, You know, your point, Binksy, around him learning stuff. I, I think when I saw him struggle, I mean, you obviously don't want to see, as a fan, you don't want to see New Zealand players struggle. But the fact that we've won both those games and he has struggled, I'm actually delighted with that because, yeah, I really hope that he can, you know, come back for them from that. That You're not going to go through your whole career being on top and, and being in situations that are preferable so yeah if I'm I'm really hoping that he can bounce back nicely and then uh you know push his claim because I don't think he's in our top 11 T20 squad at the moment because you think about someone like Lockie Ferguson to come back he would be picked ahead of Kyle Jameson for me and then you know there's just not many other spots going in that bowling attack
2: I'll let you I'll lead you in here Stu just with the, the New Zealand spinners what do you make of them through the first two matches
1: I've been quite happy with them, you know. I, I think both of them, both Sodi and Santner, I don't think they've got too many question marks around them, and in terms of their role on the side, and in terms of uh, their performances over the years, I think they've always been pretty consistent performers at that level. You know, both of them have got question marks around them at Test level, and and you know, even at even their their value in our ODI attack, I guess. But you know, they're both. I think if you look at our T20 all time charts, Santa and Sodia are both up there, and even the the world rankings in T20, they're both up there. So, India is going to be India is what we're building towards. They're going to play a big part there. I'm very happy with how they're going so far.
3: Looking ahead, Stuart, and gazing into your crystal ball for just a moment. Do you think New Zealand are going to need one more spinner to go to India? And if so, who's looking the most likely candidate at this point to come in behind Sodi and Santner, who look like they're the front runners right now?
1: I think they will, t- they, will, they will certainly take another one, I would have thought, particularly if they're going to take 20 people in, in that squad. I mean, Todd Astle was in the, the squad earlier on in the season, didn't get a run. I was quite surprised they didn't just give him a run out to see. But I, I mean, I suppose we all know what he's been able to do over the, the years, Similarly, Ajaz Patel, I think, could could have an argument to be in that squad in the subcontinent, just depending on the balance of, of what they want to do. The fact that Mark Chapman's in the, the squad as a, as a backup batsman will, will help in terms of trying to get an, an extra over in, in India. But, you know, if, if you were picking an eleven tomorrow, I, I think Santner and Sodhi are, are streets ahead in that department just because of what they've been able to do in the past. And then you're looking at those other guys as as injury cover, or in some circumstances maybe you're considering, I guess, playing someone like Todd as your all rounder because he can bat at eight potentially and be a, a third spinner if you really need one.
2: I, I do feel like someone like Mark Chapman, like you talked about, and we've talked about it before, being there as that third spinner because he's got such upside with the bat. You also, in I remember when we went to the 2020, I think it was the West Indies one, we yeah. saw Glenn Phillips rolling his arm over a lot uh, prior to that game. So I think if you have those two, maybe with a combination of Kane, if if we do need that extra spinning option, that has upside with the bat. I think that's the way to go. Lippy,
0: we'll move on. Sticking with New Zealand cricket, the White Ferns. So um, England started the tour, not in particularly good form in the warm-up games, but managed to get a couple of wins on the board, but then a good response from the white ferns on Sunday.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I guess you made the point at the start of uh, the the podcast that this, you know, these next three games for for both the black caps and the white ferns are, are now going to be without fans and and all in Wellington. And I think it's just such a such a disappointment for particularly the white ferns, you know, because they don't really get the opportunity as as much as the men to play in front of a big crowd. And and these games were all going to be Double headers. so it's it's really disappointing that they're not going to get that opportunity now. In terms of the cricket that we've seen, you're spot on. I mean, those first two games, well, the White Ferns—it just seemed like a continuation from that Australia series. They were just outclassed essentially. the The big guns didn't fire, and England was all over them. You know, we you you look at that England lineup, the big guns, Tammy Beaumont here the night, Nat Siver they just looked world class, and I mean, that's going to be no surprise to anyone who's been following their career. But you know, the the New Zealand big names just didn't fire.
2: So I guess my question then is, what changed for that third game? Was it was it the the big guns firing for New Zealand? I think so. I mean, you know, New Zealand's.
1: You look at that batting lineup, and you see Sophie Devine, Amy Satterthwaite, Satterthwaite and Amelia Kerr in that sort of middle order and you think gee those that's three world-class players and and that's exactly what happened you know Amy Sathwaite she played she's not no longer the captain but but it felt like a captain's knock it was a you know we've been outclassed in this series and I'm going to just stand up today she was particularly punishing against spin she did there was a chance uh, with the game in the balance she got dropped on about 78 could have a tough uh, Caught in bowl chance hit straight back at at Eccleston, I think, but she just took it in her own hands and and won the game for New Zealand. And and Amelia Kerr played that played the supporting role. I mean, she, it's it's funny with Amelia Kerr because you think of her as such a a useful and and powerful damaging batsman, but then you look at her ODI record and there's only this was only her third score over 50 in in uh, in ODI cricket. Admittedly, that's only 37 games, but for someone of her class. You would think that that might be a little bit higher, particularly when you know her top score. Okay, it was against Ireland, but as a two hundred and thirty-two in an ODI, you know, you don't really get that if it, if you can't bat. So, yeah, I I think that that was the the key thing. They're, I think they can be relatively happy with how they've bowled in a, in most of those games, but yeah, the batting they would, they would just be disappointed with the way that they got out. A lot of soft dismissals in the first couple of ODIs and just rectified it in the second ga- in the last game. And I guess it, the reverse
0: for England from 160 for four in that final uh, or sorry, in that third game um, to kind of, you know, collapse and, and really only post that score of 220 from a, a pretty strong position. I think, yeah, batting has, has let them down in that um, in that respect, um, particularly, as, as you mentioned, um, when someone like Beaumont um, and, and Heather Knight as well both get in, you, um, obviously Beaumont stranded on 80 on odd. Um, but you would have really liked to see Heather, Heather Knight or, or Siva or even Amy Jones, who I think is going to be a fantastic cricketer, uh, get going in the top of the order for, for the for the English girls.
1: One, one thing I did want to mention that, that was really positive from those first couple of games for New Zealand was the performance of Brooke Halliday. I think, you know, she's a new name to uh, us on the international stage, made her debut back-to-back 50s in those first two games when, when the rest of the side just wasn't performing with the bat. And she, what was most impressive about her is that she just looked really confident at that level. Used her feet really well. Scored it almost to run a ball on debut. And I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that New Zealand really need. We need that, I guess, new new blood in there because there are there are players in there that have been in there a long time. And Halliday looks like a keeper. So yeah, I'm really I'm really excited, and, and it'll be interesting to see where she sticks. I think she's just been added to the the t20 squad and. I think we're gonna, you know, what what was what we're gonna be watching for in this T20 series is can New Zealand continue that form from the third of thirty ODI because they've shown glimpses of being able to put this class together and and putting themselves up with the top teams. Now we just need to see it on a consistent basis, and you know this T20 series is the first place that that's opportunity is going to arise.
2: Uh, so, Binksy, I see there was a little bit of fire on social media this week with the uh, English men's and women's team.
0: Yeah, look, I think a storm in a teacup, really. Um, English batsman Rory Burns, who, let's not forget, been dropped from the England side for that harrowing two-day defeat to India. So perhaps better out of the side than than in the side in, in hindsight. Um, yeah, look, took offence to Alex Hartley. Um, who made a comment on Twitter that it was nice of the England boys to get the test match finished before the England women were due to play their, uh, their game against the white ferns. I think he's deleted the t- the tweet since, and I think he's also been reprimanded by the media. Um, but I think if both um, Hartley and Burns reflect on that little spat, um, it was a case of uh, yeah, count to 10 before you hit send on your tweet, I think um, for, for both of them, really. Um, Ill-advised, I think, from Hartley. And, yeah, Byrne should have probably just carried on playing Call of Duty. (laughs) Yeah, so, Lippard, do you want to give us a little bit of a domestic update before we move on to these stats fest when we come to talk about this
1: India-England test in Ahmedabad? Yeah, look, so um, the the Ford Trophy is uh, reaching the final stages. Wednesday, there will be the preliminary final, which essentially is just the semi-final. Um, and Canterbury already into that final uh, at the weekend. And I think, you know, them and Wellington, who are one of the teams in that semi versus ND, Canterbury and Wellington have been the dominant teams over the, the past couple of months in domestic cricket. And really, we just saw a reflection of that over the weekend. We saw the big guns getting runs. Latham and Nichols for Canterbury, get both getting hundreds. And then Finn Allen and Tom Blundell, Powering Wellington toward to a, a record 427 scoreline from their 50 overs. Finn Allen equaling the, the fastest, uh, uh, list A, 100 in New Zealand. Wow. Tom Blundell getting 150. I mean, just, you know, I guess that's what we want to see, right? We want to see the, the top players in, in, in New Zealand domestic cricket being the ones who are our top performers. And, you know, Finn Allen, I mean, w- what a season it's been for him. He's... It's his first 100, actually, for Wellington in any format. Uh, you know, it sort of sounds remarkable because he's had such a, a great season. But, you know, 50 balls to get your 100. He played some outrageous shots. I mean, shout out to New Zealand Cricket for um, getting as much of the Ford Trophy onto their website as possible. You can go on there and see highlights packages. Just really, really top stuff that that we can get to see some of that now, and particularly with all the Super Smash coverage. So, yeah, very, very, very exciting to... To think of what a cricketer he can be, because I mean, I mean, Raj Baldy, I can't remember him being such a such an aggressive batsman in, in the years past.
2: Yeah, I mean, he sort of burst onto the Auckland club cricket scene as a sixteen-year-old. I think I remember. Mm. Um, I never played against him. I think you might have Lippy, but um, he look. You're right. I don't. I don't remember him being that sort of dashing batsman, but. He was one of those guys that if we were rained out, we would always go back and and watch him. I remember doing that a couple of times. It happened to uh, happened to us, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Lippy, did you play against him? No, I didn't. I didn't. I just I remember him
1: scoring a uh, hundred against England A in in one of those New Zealand eleven games, and um, you know, just just yeah, putting himself on the scene. I, I sort of viewed him more as a, a classical, not you know, a classical batsman who could. Uh, who was more, you know, more suited at times for the for the four day game, but he's really just taken this role on as at the top of the order and you know, he's he's continuing on his form and, and pushing his claim for to be there in that T twenty World Cup squad. So it's exciting stuff, you know. I mean, that's what we want, right? We want these young guys pushing for spots and putting pressure on everyone else.
0: Well look, I think from the the little I've seen of him this year, he's a genuine three format player and I, I think the thing that impressed me most in the Super Smash game that Baldy and I went and and saw at um, Eden Park was that he knew when to play proper cricket shots and he knew when to innovate and and play the kind of T20 shots that you you know see associated with that game and and when someone's got that ability um, to strike a ball pretty classically with a whether it's a you know a straight drive or a little clip off the Uh, clip off the toes but then also play those kind of 360 degree shots Mm. you know that's going to be something that's pretty difficult um, to defend particularly with the quality of the wickets that we're seeing in in new zealand cricket we've had an an awesome summer weather-wise and the decks have uh, have really shown that because there's been some bloody highways out there this year that's for sure
1: and a couple of just before we finish that that leave new zealand shores a couple of just quick shout-outs to to a couple of wills who are uh, maybe lesser known on the the inter- international scene uh, sh- for sure. Will Donald seven scores over fifty uh, in the in the ten rounds of the Ford Trophy. Excellent effort from him this season. And Will Williams from Canterbury eleven wickets, top top topping the charts for for uh, for the bowling, continuing on is excellent form for the Plunkett Shield. So yeah, look look for those, I guess to be in, in consideration for, for A-squads as we uh, round out the summer in New Zealand.
0: Well, that just about wraps up this segment of the pod. We are going to be back after the break. We've still got plenty to talk about. We've got India, England, all coming back after Raj's favourite noise. As cricketers, we've all had our bales trimmed from time to time. And with DRS, that's the downstairs rainforest situation, we've probably had too many where it's just clipping the stumps. With the Lawnmower 3.0 from Manscaped, there'll be no such trouble as you'll be able to remove more stumps than Jimmy Anderson at an overcast headingly. With its ceramic blade, you'll be able to grip firmly and almost guarantee not to nick your balls to the slips. We've been lucky enough to test drive the lawnmower 3.0. Even luckier that we got one each and have to say, we are all smoother than a Veracoli cover drive. When you visit manscaped.com, you'll save 20% and get free shipping with the special code TOPORDER at checkout. You know how it works. Get over to manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com and use TOPORDER for 20% off with free shipping on all of their great products. Thanks for listening. We're back. Baldy, I'm going to come over to you. You want to talk um, stats from this India-England test. And I think um, just so that I don't run away with it, I think you're going to run the segment as well and introduce some uh, questions that we can all come back on.
3: Well, I just wanted to open it with a with a couple of uh, quantitative-based uh, pieces of information before we open up. What has been... A really uh, emotional discussion on cricket wickets across the world, uh, led by led by media pundits in England and India, and then backed up by by some of the players as well. Um, I just wanted to run a couple of uh, bits of quantitative analysis a- across to the to the group before we throw it open uh, to react. That Test match that we just saw in Ahmedabad was the third shortest Test match, uh, completed Test match in in a long time. In fact, it was the It was the shortest test match in terms of balls bowled since 1934. The only two completed test matches that were shorter than that uh, were in uh, Melbourne uh, when South Africa were bowled out for 36 and 45 and a test match against Australia in 1932 and then a test match in 1935 against uh, between West Indies and England. Uh, where England actually declared behind on the first innings uh, and West Indies declared at 51 for six uh, on what was an uncovered wicket. So to frame the conversation that we're about to have, this test match that we've just seen in Ahmedabad has been the shortest completed test match in terms of balls bowled for 85 years. And also it is the shortest completed test match, not affected by rain uh, in the covered wicket era. So that kind of frames our conversation around whether or not, and, and there's been lots of questions around whether or not we thought it was a good pitch or a bad pitch. Um, what does this, what does this look like? So I want to put it across to, um, to an, a semi neutral person first cause we've got Adam as an Englishman. I'll open it up to you first as a neutral. Um, no Raj, in terms of in terms of this cricket wicket, you and I have had lots of conversations over the years about what constitutes a good or a bad wicket. What did you make of this pitch in this test match between India and England?
2: So it's a hard one for me because it's hard to argue against a lot of the points. It's hard to argue that they didn't last two days, uh, which, which is, is shocking. But I don't know. I, I'm looking at it from a perspective of I watched pretty much all of... All of that, which wasn't hard (laughs) 1.75 days. Um, A lot of the wickets were not spinning wildly out of the rough. The the wicket-taking balls were the ones that went straight on. Mm. Uh, There there were a lot of poor shots, uh, poor sweep shots, Stuart. Um, And I guess the other side of the coin is when we talk about bad wickets and stuff, and especially in in the subcontinent and we talk about spinning wickets, the team that won the toss lost the game by 10 wickets. So that that, that that's another perspective on it. But at mm. the end of the day for me, I mean I don't have any skin in the game whatsoever. I just want to see good cricket and I don't think that I enjoyed watching that that game of cricket.
1: I think that's the biggest point I would pick up on that t- two-day tests are no good for anyone, right? Like that it doesn't serve it doesn't serve the players, it doesn't serve the fans, it doesn't serve the the bank balances I don't imagine it doesn't serve the TV audiences it it, regardless of what you think of the how people got out and all that kind of stuff two-day tests are not good for anyone and if if that's if that kind of pitch is going to have a two-day result then we need to think about what we're doing I mean you, you think you look at what the players have said so I've seen I've seen interviews with Rohit Sharma who suggested that the pitch sort of didn't have any demons. And Joe Root has, has in a way, said similar-ish things. And they've both kind of gone about, talked more about the ball and how this SG pink ball, basically just the combination with the pitch was, was the issue. And, you know, I, I don't know enough about the science and all that kind of stuff, how that kind of stuff works. But I don't know if, if they'd tested this ball on a pitch like this before, but whatever's happened it's not been good for cricket has it
3: well certainly the reaction has been that it hasn't been good for cricket adam you're probably emotionally the closest to this particular test match being an english fan what did you make of what did you make of the of the wicket firstly and what did you make of some of the reaction from members of the english media after the fact
0: the thing for me is, I actually find myself agreeing with Michael Vaughan, which is never a good thing. Um, it's probably the you know the second time recently that that's been the case. And um, look, I guess, um, look, I think there's a an oft quoted um piece of wisdom: uh, statistics are like bikinis. What they re- reveal is suggestive, but what they conceal is vital. Um, and look, to me, I think some of the stats we we can sit here and we can talk a whole load of stats. You, you've mentioned obviously third quickest test match since you know the the year dot almost um the thing that i kind of look at and the the thing that i think it's really difficult unless you've seen a lot of this test match and i don't quite agree that raj was the 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 neutral option to throw to first and foremost but you know he did watch most of the test match as as i think a, a couple of us here did as well um and as we said not hard to have done that but Yes, the straight ball was taking the wicket, but there was significant spin from the first ball. Um, it didn't look a good wicket. There were puffs of dust coming out. And I think that there's all these modern gizmos and statistics that are out there. But one of the ones that I saw that resonated with me early on is that they get the old protractor out and look at um, how much the the, the pitcher spun on the first day. And this was off the charts in that respect in terms of the percentage of spin for a first day. Um, pitch when they got that little um, yeah that little protractor out there. I'd also probably just say that Joe Root was pretty diplomatic. What do you want him to say? He's not going to go out there and absolutely roast the groundsman, who let's face it, is going to produce the next Test wicket that these guys <laughs> play on as well. And um, and I think that the other factor there is the England boys have said you know they've had a look at the pitch that's going to be used for this fourth Test match, and it looks pretty similar. So you know they will have their jandals and their beach towels with them as they go out to bat. Um, I'm sure, in this test match as well. Root's comment about the pitch was really, really telling. He gave a one-word answer when asked about his comment on the pitch to the BBC, and that was it was an interesting pitch. And then, yes, he moved on and talked diplomatically about the fact that they didn't play Axar particularly well. They've got a lot of work to do. And all of those things are true. But the bottom line is, for me, that this isn't a great advert for the game. It isn't great for the fact that a media... Rights deal has been sold for the first time in a long, long time in England for this to be on terrestrial TV. Is that terrestrial TV station going to bid for the next subcontinental tour when they might only get two days of a five day game um, on their airwaves and and lose all of the, you know, the ad revenue that they were going to get for showing what is a pretty iconic series. So I do think the ICC has got to step in. Um, I do think that the fact that the sanctions are so limited for the ICC needs to be looked at because um, home advantage, fine, but this was a disgrace.
2: So I guess just to jump in uh, with a couple more facts, uh, I guess, why, why do we think that it was the pitch that was the issue? Like, I'll give you some examples. So England were 70 odd for two in the first innings, bowled out for 112, I think. India were 99 for three, bowled out for under 150. The last time both of these two teams played pink ball tests, India were bowled out for 36 by Australia. England were bowled out for 60 odd by New Zealand. Why is it that why are we blaming the pitch for this when there is a, a history of low scores for these teams with the pink ball and in recent times?
3: Mm. And 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 to to balance that argument a little bit more, I think from memory, when India came to New Zealand, um, both of the test matches here were over in relatively quick time. I'm not sure if they were over inside um, five days in total as the last two test matches were together, but those two test matches didn't, la- didn't go the distance. And so you can make, if you wanted to, you could make the same argument that, um, you know, two test matches in India went five days, two test matches in New Zealand went five days. Why aren't we talking about the standard of the wicket? i think I think the the perception the perception that 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 people can take in this situation is that um, they see people see what's in front of them. And when you see puffs of dust, when you see the wicket reacting, and when you see f- like deviation that's as significant as this pitch had, the casual fan takes that away and went, wow, this pitch is doing so much because look how much dust is being created when the ball hits the surface on day one. Look how much deviation there is off the seam for a spin bowler on day one, which we're just not used to seeing. People notice things that are out of the ordinary. If you have a wicket that seems a little bit and and teams snick off because the ball's moved half an inch, there's a lot less to see going on there, um, and a lot less that sticks in our memory uh, as compared to a, a pitch that spins a long, long way. And I think that's why a lot of people pick up on those kinds of visual cues and go, "Well, this pitch is, is, you know, is is poor because it has these physical cast characteristics that a lot of cricket watchers just aren't used to seeing, um, and 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 aren't part of their kind of standard frame of reference for what they think about a wicket." Um, But those results are exactly the same. Why aren't we talking about the pitch in in Melbourne where India were bowled out for 36? Why aren't we talking about the the pitch where England were were bowled out for a a low score? Because the ball didn't deviate as far as it does uh, on a spinning pitch. And that's not to say that either pitch is is worse than the other because ultimately, from an outcome perspective, my view is that a a pitch that produces two-day test cricket regardless of what it looks like or how it behaves is not good for broadcasters and it's not good for the game. So ultimately uh, India are going to pay, unfortunately a, a, a financial penalty possibly when the broadcast deal comes up again, because the broadcaster may go, well, I'm not guaranteed to get 25 days of cricket. Um, I'm only going to get 12, 15. So I'm going to pay the appropriate price for that. Of course, if India are winning, then the broadcaster may choose to overlook that for, at least for the home broadcasts. Um, so, so all of that being said, do we think that our opinion would change if this was a test match where it was 112 and 81 plays 145 and 49 for none? If it was a green seamer, would we still have the same perspective? Do you think, Stuart?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I, I, I think what, what's I guess being lost in a bit of this, and and what I suppose is. Uh, is the downside for me is that we want to see different wickets in different parts of the world. I think that's the beauty of test cricket. And it's the beauty of playing around all, you know, in all of these different conditions, different mm-hmm. people who have different skills get to show them in different countries. But I think what we've seen in these past two tests is that it's gone a little bit too far. And unfortunately we're, we're not getting to see, you know, as much as, you know, I, I I can definitely agree with some of the things Raj has said, but I I feel like we've missed out on a great series. You know, you can these two sides are are two good sides, and you look back at that Australia India series, com- comparing the two, we saw. I just feel like we saw a lot better cricket and a lot better periods where bat actually fought with ball and it was a competition, whereas these two. I love the ball spinning. I'm the first to admit on this podcast, I would absolutely love spinners to play a bigger role. But yeah, I feel like we're we're missing out on that 50-50 competition. We just don't know what's going to happen next.
0: For, for me, it was it was different to that same example that you used, Baldy. And, and I think the reason for me is that, yes, in certain conditions you are going to get a seeming wicket in New Zealand, in England... Occasionally, in South Africa, and I think that there's still a little bit of a gamble there, um, as there is in this game as well, in that if you um, lose the toss, um, then you you know you're potentially in a little bit of you know a little bit of trouble. Um, the other component, I think is, and look, I don't want to be all conspiracy theorist here, but when you looked at the overhead um, shots of the pitch in the in the days leading up, you could actually obviously see that, you know, they'd selectively watered areas of the pitch. So, you know, the middle of the pitch was actually um, a lot darker in colour where, you know, they'd obviously introduced a lot more water. Um, and on the spinner's length, they'd, they'd left it deliberately dry so that it was going to really, really spin from from early on um, from, you know, those, you know, not necessarily conspiracy theories, but certainly some, you know, some media that's relatively subjective in the way that you, and um, the way that you look at it. So, look, at uh, I I don't know the answer to this. I I think you can't take anything away from India's spinners. Ashwin and Axar were superb. They exploited not only the conditions, but the fact that that pink ball was apparently skidding on a little bit more. And they exploited the fact that for some reason, um, England thought it was a good idea to send Johnny Bairstow home to minus seven degrees in Yorkshire. Um, and then flying back out, so he could be ambushed in Ahmedabad twice, um, and you know looked like he'd never played cricket before. So you know there's some choices there and some selection that comes into this as well. But ultimately, I think what it comes down to is that balance between bat and ball, and and trying to be not emotional about it. I just don't think there was that balance between bat and ball. And um, you're often going to see slightly in one favour than the other. But I just think this was too
1: much in one one uh, one camp. Bingsey you mentioned um, you know, selection and things there. H- how did England get? I feel like England's got this completely wrong the way they've read the pitch, right? I mean, how did how did they go into this game with only one spinner?
2: Well, they went in England, with two, England, England so and joke. yourself, because you 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 predict, you predicted that team lineup, right, Bingsey?
0: Yeah, look, I certainly did, and um, I, I think um, vindicated really with our second spinner's figures in the match. Um, if only his batsman could have got a few more runs on the board. Um. Yeah, I'd be sitting here um, looking like Nostradamus. But no, in in all seriousness, I I think what happened really was that a little bit like when you play at Headingley, a lot of players, um, you know, look at the pitch instead of the conditions and make the wrong decision. Um, England, I think, looked at the box of pink cricket balls and thought our gun here is to go with Broad, Anderson and Archer, regardless of the pitch conditions. And I think the second thing that kind of probably led them down that route is what had happened with Dominic Bess as well. Um, If we go, you know, we're not going to relitigate that whole situation, but Moen Ali, as far as I'm aware, is the only England player who's been asked to stay on um, during this tour rather than take his scheduled break back at home. What's that done for Don Bess's confidence and almost put him in a position where he was unpickable for this test match, uh, which left England really without an option other than going in with that um, attack and that, that was the other thing that Root did say in the press conferences after the game he said look we think we've probably got those selections a little bit wrong regardless of that I, I, I don't think Don Best would have made a great deal of difference in um, uh, the situation when you get bowled out um, for 112 and, and 80 odds so um, yeah some poor yeah poor selection uh, some great bowling some very very bad batting Um, but as I've said, a woeful, woeful, woeful piece of real estate.
2: I was really impressed with uh, Zach Crawley at the top of the order. I know in that first innings was probably the the best time to bat, but I thought he made some really, really good decisions shot selection-wise, and uh, his on-driving was was, was absolutely superb. Uh, But... For me, it was how he played the spinners, especially Axar, and oh, I guess we'll say Ashwin as well, but more so much uh, more so Axa, is that he he went forward, he went back, but he played the line of the delivery, which is where he was keeping out those straight ones and missing the ones that that absolutely bit and turned. Mm. Uh, I thought that was really good and something that uh, nobody else really in the game did. Mm. Uh, so I, th- I thought that was really good from him anyway.
3: While we're on the positives, can I can I give a shout out actually to to the to the Indian spinners because when you're presented with good conditions and seam bowlers will know this sometimes it's easier to get carried away and go well I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ram the ball in short and I'll get all of this bounce at the whacker, or I've got a green seam or I'm just gonna you know do whatever and 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 you know they don't get the results. Ashwin and Axar bowled beautifully in the conditions that they were presented with and caused England all sorts of trouble because they were able to spin the ball and get the ball to go straight. You know, it's very tempting to try and turn everything, but they, they combined the, the ability to turn the ball with balls that go straight. And that did a, a tremendous amount of damage. And while we're handing out credit, I think we've got to give a massive credit to Rohit Sharma, who over the last two test matches has defied all of the statistics that we've talked about and scored several hundred runs on, on wickets that, uh, you know, for everybody else, for all the, the mere mortals of the game, very, very difficult to bat on. So a massive shout-out f- from me to to Rohit Sharma for a 66 in the first innings um, and then, you know, not out 25 in the second innings off 25. Just showed uh, what positive intent can do. Uh, in terms of being able to use their feet and and take the take the the game to the attack uh, to the bowling side, so um, we we do have to give them a shout out. Um, just wrapping up on this pitch discussion before we move on to to other things and and law changes and whatnot. What would we do if we were in charge? So if we if we four were in the ICC um, panel of, of of rule makers, what do we think the ICC should do, and what do we think they they are going to do? around, um, the perception that this pitch in particular was poor, but, but pitches that turn prodigiously, um, what do we think should be done about that? If anything, and I'm going to come to Stuart last because you're a spin bowler. Um, (laughs) so, so Adam, we went to you last, last time, let's go to you first. Do you think the ICC should do anything? And if so, what change should we be making to the to the setup of cricket and the laws of cricket um, to to change anything at, at this point? And and do we have to do that just for Indian pitches? Do we have to do that for pitches all over the world? What changes do we need to make? Do you think?
0: So look, without going through all of the the regulations that are there, there, there is a, a set of directives around the ground and and what um what governs a decent test match surface and. Without sort of going into the actual detail, to paraphrase, essentially a pitch isn't, by the ICC's definition, deemed as a good wicket if it offers either excessive seam or spin early in the test match um, and or excessive or uneven bounce within that period as well. But it's expected that as the game progresses, there is some deterioration, and those characteristics come into the makeup of the cricket pitch. Very, very difficult to do because there's obviously so many variables, not least the two teams that play on it and the way that they approach their batting or their bowling, the weather, a whole host of other things as well. But ultimately, I think you don't want to take away that element of home advantage. But also, I think you, you don't want to potentially put yourself in a position where we're having this kind of debate around some form of impropriety by the home board and we haven't even talked about the third umpiring in this test match which bordered on criminal at some points um, only seeing one camera angle of key moments in the game so that for me is that is the key is that there needs to be a level of consistency um, and absolutely, if England get, you know, Bangladesh or India or whoever it is in May on an absolute seamer at Headingley, we should be having the same conversation when it feels like an ambush. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, that's what it comes down to um, for me. This list of pitches is listed on the ICC's website. Um, you see the sanctions and you see the ratings for the pitch but you never see any action taken. Um, You know, the sanctions are so limited and toothless by the ICC that it's never going to amount to anything if this kind of thing continues. Um, And it's going to take those broadcast deals to go away before they realize that, you know, they've potentially made some serious mistakes.
3: Raj, Should the ICC do anything about this wicket in particular and, and and wickets in general? Um, And if so, what should they be doing in your view?
2: So personally, so if we look at the second test pitch, uh, I don't have a problem with that one at all. The second test pitch, uh, sorry, the sorry, the third test pitch, the second spinning one, uh, the problem I have with it is that the game ended quickly. The ICC or whoever is, is judging this needs to make a determination whether it was poor batting or a poor wicket well, good or ball. both. Or good bowling, or both. Um, from what I've seen, I think that there was, across both teams, a lot of, a lack of mental toughness around playing the spinning ball. And the big argument that I I keep going back to is that if we did play with the scenario where the away team gets to choose what they do first, England would have chosen to bat, yet they still lost this Test match by 10 wickets. I know we're talking about it being a lottery and all that stuff, and I completely agree with a lot of what's been said. But when you when you have an argument and you go, there was only 30 wickets in this test match. I know it went for two days. However, we only lost 10 wickets in the game, and we won by 10 wickets And then that fourth innings. Mm. It's an argument that, that makes sense and has a little bit of weight to it, but I do think that a two-day test is not good for anybody. So, we do need to explore how to how to get that. we' get get that out of the game.
1: Stuart. Oh, look, I, you know I think the 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 issue really is that we're having this conversation and that, and that we've had this conversation in two tests now, and and like I said before, we we're, we're a, a series that could be so exciting is being discussed about things that aren't aren't the cricket, they aren't the actual ball and bat you know, hitting stumps, hitting wicket, hitting the ball. And and we, yeah, that, that's the problem, right? If the ICC are not going to do anything about it, we know that. If I think in the future that we need to look, if they're going to look at things and they're going to put value on the World Test Championship and, and teams are actually going to care about it, they need to put sanctions on things in the same way that they do with slow over rates. They need to consider, you know, credit, taking points away from sides mm. that are p- producing poor wickets. Whether that'll have any impact, who knows? Whether whether this was a, a wicket that you know was unacceptable, I think you can all be the judge of of the results and and make up your own mind there. You know, I I love it that it spins, but yeah, as as we've all said many times, it's it's not good for a game for for two day, for a game to be over in two days and. We just don't want to be. We don't want to be talking about. I really hope we're not talking about this in the fourth and fourth game, but I suspect that we will be.
3: Well, let's wrap this segment up by by starting with stats and and ending with stats. So, congratulations to both Ishant Sharma, who played a hundred Test matches uh, in this in this. Um, in this third test at Ahmedabad, for a, for a fast bowler in India, that is an excellent, excellent milestone to be reached. And I don't know that there are too many other Indian fast bowlers who would have got to 100 test matches for India. So congratulations to Ishant Sharma on his 400th game. And also for Ashwin picking up his 400th test wicket in what from memory is only something like his 76th or so test match. So uh, has raced to hundred wicket uh, to 400 wickets sorry, for India um, at an average now of... 24.9 in 77 matches and a strike rate of 53 so he's he's amassing a fantastic looking test career as an spin bowler for, for India and congratulations to him on his 400th but let's leave that segment there a lot of people are going to have their own op- opinion on on what constitutes a good or a poor wicket and certainly a lot of people have had their opinion on this one so let's move on so that just about wraps up the podcast please
0: do make sure that you dip back into the feed to listen to news, views and interviews from all around the cricketing world. If you are looking for that top order podcast fix in between our regular episodes, you are also going to see a couple of mini episodes pop up in the feed talking about the potential law changes that the MCC World Cricket Committee has put in front of the ICC. But for now, it's good night and God bless from all of us here at the top order podcast stay tuned in the feed
3: and we'll speak to you very very soon good night